But first, right off the top of the show, you might be looking to do something for the upcoming long weekend. I know people as well who are thinking about spring break and staying in BC. Have we moved into an intra-provincial travel phase? And if so, what exactly does that mean? Well, joining me on the line to talk more about this is Walt Judas, the CEO of the tourism industry of BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, what does that mean exactly if we're in an intra-provincial travel phase? Well, that was a term that was used in a report by Destination Canada. And really all it was suggesting is that people are searching within British Columbia for things to see and do on a vacation at some point this year. It certainly doesn't mean that we've transitioned from where we are today, meaning staying local, not uh, going on any trips for non-essential reasons and uh, abiding by the directives that the PHO has given. It really means that people are thinking ahead to somewhere down the road when travel does open up again, where they might like to go. Given that it's unlikely international travel is going to happen anytime soon, maybe not at all this year, what can people do this summer with their vacation plans and and so many British Columbians have started to do that planning already in anticipation of the summer or some other point this year and I think that's what the report was intimating not that we've moved into the next phase of being able to travel wherever we want. Right, because I guess some people would make that leap that if you see a report that says, so we're searching out places to travel within BC, making that leap that that means people are doing it right now or planning again for it for the family day long weekend or for for upcoming spring break. Yeah, and I can see that. But I, I know, too, that in this case, it's really about searching for opportunities to travel at some point. It doesn't necessarily equate to travel bookings. In fact, It's really a sign that people are dreaming about a trip at some point or gathering information for the future. And the the research that we've seen for accommodation and air bookings, it doesn't specify a specific period. So even if you booked a trip for next month or the month after, given the travel restrictions in place and the likelihood that they may continue for a while longer, where anybody that's booked that trip needs to be prepared to cancel or postpone to another time. Uh, Does it give you some level of optimism, though, that people are, in fact, looking at places that they can travel within BC? If we look back at uh, what we were doing last summer, uh, that really was the direction, given the numbers people were told to stay local but travel within the province. Uh, Is that uh, optimism for you that people are, are looking to do that again, if the numbers and if the rules allow? No question. It's positive that people are looking to travel. There is a pent-up demand. We've all missed getting together with friends and family at vacation spots or traveling to wherever we, we want to in the province to experience supernatural British Columbia. But at the same time, we also recognize that domestic travel is not the panacea for our industry. We did see some good Uh, results last summer in pockets of the province or within certain sectors, but we really need international travel at some point to sustain our industry. The cruise sector is shut down for the year. We know what a big impact 
that has here in Vancouver and elsewhere around the province, Victoria, and even throughout uh, British Columbia. The meetings and events sector is, is shut down. A lot of the adventure tourism operators who rely on international travel have been idle for the better part of a year or more. That's the kind of travel that will begin to get the visitor economy moving again and really return the kinds of revenues that we need for businesses to survive. But in the meantime, we have to rely on domestic travel as an interim step uh, until we get to the point where international travel resumes again. And while we do that, and we are waiting for that, are you concerned at all about what some consider to be some mixed messages in that here we are going into what will be a long weekend for a lot of people? Uh, People are being told to stay local, but say a day trip to Whistler is okay. Uh, There's news out this morning that the transmission in Whistler is down, even though it's still quite high. It's it's gone down, which is good news. Uh, We've got resorts like Big White uh, that a couple of weeks ago cancelled out of the area bookings. It seems like a bit of a patchwork as far as what different towns and different places are doing? Well, in some cases it might be, to be sure. But if you look at at the ski hills by way of example, you know, Big White, as you pointed out, did cancel a lot of business. They've lost millions of dollars in bookings uh, from reservations that were made by people from out of province. Uh, And they've encouraged people only from the local region to ski at Big White. Whistler is somewhat similar, albeit it's not the activity itself that's the problem. It's, of course, people gathering in social settings or in private accommodation that has really led to the spread. And in some cases, of course, it's by workers. But yes, I think some clarity and messaging is always helpful about what people can and cannot do. Uh, And at this point, it's, of course, a directive. It's not a formal order. But at the same time, uh, clarity does help, and and there are those anomalies. You know, if you didn't rely on the lower mainland for skiing at Whistler, the mountain likely wouldn't be open at all. So in that case, I can see why there is a bit more leeway. But on the other hand, most communities are really encouraging only locals to experience uh, all that they have to offer for tourism and hospitality. And do you think it will be enough as far as if people do get out and support their local communities, uh, if they can continue supporting businesses, will that be enough uh, to kind of keep the lights on until we do get that international traffic back and and cruise ships and the things that we've come to depend on? It won't be. Like I said before, uh, we saw some good pockets of business uh, in places around the province, certain sectors, but in many cases, the local business really allowed uh, operators to keep their doors open to a degree, albeit scaled down and without the workforce and the revenues that they would normally collect. But just to be able to pay the bills, in many cases, those operators still lost money. So we can't rely solely on locals or domestic travel. International visitors spend three to five times more than a domestic visitor. Plus, when you're a local, chances are you're doing a lot of the stuff that is in your own backyard for free. You may not be frequenting a lot of the businesses that tourists would, whale watching, for example, or going to an attraction, etc. There just isn't that same volume there, nor is there the level of spend. So 
If we have to rely on domestic travel for another year, many, many businesses will be in deep trouble and they won't survive. Uh, All right. Uh, Walt, Judas, we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. But thanks so much for making some time. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, yesterday on the program, you might recall, we were talking with Len Saunders, who is an immigration lawyer. He's based in Blaine, but he has a lot of clients, both on the U.S. side of the border and on the Canadian side. And he does a lot of his work in Peace Arch Park. So he sees firsthand what is happening there with the tents that have been set up and the hundreds of people at some points who meet, spend a few hours together and then go their separate ways. And he talked briefly about this yesterday. Well, I'm there every day. Right? That's my part-time office for Canadians who can't come into the U.S. I meet them there. So, you know, I'm violating that law if they try to enforce Canadians not coming into the Peace Arts Park. Now, at least two B.C. Liberal MLAs have written a letter to the Premier saying it is time the Premier work with officials in Washington State to stop the meetings that are happening in that park. And Trevor Halford is the B.C. Liberal MLA for Surrey-White Rock and joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Joe. Uh, what exactly would you like the Premier to do? I'd like him to, you know, at a time when he's asking us all to do more, um, I think we have to ask him to do a little bit more. And this is an issue that we've seen ongoing um, since the border closures and actually since uh, the province closed down the Canadian side of Peace Arch Park. And so the side that is still in operation is on the American side. It's much, much smaller. But what we've got now is basically... Um, you know, every day from dawn to dusk is, is a tent city. And, and during the weekends, we have an excess of, you know, over 75 tents where people are meeting up. And, uh, you know, you can, you can see that social distancing is, is not taking place. Have you been there or seen what's happening firsthand? I live right there. Uh, I live right there. It's a community that's very close to my heart. It's where my wife and I raise our children. And uh, there is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of angst inside that community because, you know, we've seen the dramatic numbers in Washington state. And when it is so easy just to walk across the ditch and set up the tent for a day, um, and gather. I, I think that that's got a lot of people concerned. Uh, you must, uh, in, during the past few months, I would imagine then, you've probably seen quite a few uh, interesting scenarios unfold in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably won't comment on that. I've heard of some interesting stories, but, uh, you know, at a time where we're all having to make sacrifices here, every single one of us, and a lot of those sacrifices are sometimes heartbreaking and in terms of not being able to see parents or grandparents or, or sometimes children for that matter. And, uh, and we all understand that, but that's all things that we're all doing to try and keep each other safe. And uh, this is a loophole that I've, I've seen for quite a while that's, um, that I don't think is, is keeping in that standing. Is there any evidence, though, that you know of that shows that the spread of COVID-19 in BC is linked to the meetings that are happening in that park? Yeah, I haven't seen any direct linkage there um, other than speculation. But, I, you know, what we don't want to see is as the weather gets better, as we approach things like the, the BC Family Day long weekend, Valentine's Day, spring break and other things, um, we don't want to see the good work that all British Columbians have made be undone by, uh, by people contracting the virus in this park.
Uh, for sure. And I think a lot of people would agree with that. But we're also we're told during the briefings uh, with Dr. Henry uh, and Adrian Dix that we're often told uh, that they know where the spread is taking place, where the virus is. And it just kind of feels like because, like you said, this has been happening for months, that if their contact tracing was pointing to that park, don't you think they would have done something already? Well, I maybe but why would you want to take that risk would be my question why would you want to wait for something to happen in order to take action and i think that you know as leaders and and what we're asking on the premier is to to take action before something does get linked there uh and i think you know they've you know they've only got one washroom there and you know when you walk by there's there's lineups of you know 20 to 30 people to use the washroom and so I, I think that you're able to see quite quickly that it, it can become a quite unsafe situation. Uh, so at this point, though, because we are talking about the part of the park that's on the U.S. side, uh, other than asking uh, the Washington State Governor Jay Inslee to do something, uh, there's no real power uh, that uh, people on this side of the border would have, would they? Well, I, that, that's a question for the border services and I think the federal government in terms of how they're, uh, you know, in terms of what they're doing at the land border crossings. And I know that new measurements are coming in and I, I'm not sure whether or not those and I doubt that those would apply to people that are accessing this park. But I, I do think that, it, you know, it is something and I, I applaud the premier for his relationship with Governor Jay Ansley. I think that is that is good. Um, and I think that that's something, that conversation that I think is long overdue to say, hey, we've closed this provincial side of the park and I'm pretty sure they've closed it or that British Columbia has closed it for the exact reasons that I'm talking about today. And I think that we should have done that in collaboration with our friends in Washington State. Right, because the closure of the, the B.C. side really was seen more as a, a preemptive. I think, like you were saying, people uh, like yourself that live in the area or were in the yeah. area suddenly saw these tents popping up and, and, and seeing people take advantage of this loophole um, to, yeah. to see people and to, to meet with people. Um, it did seem like a preemptive closure. So it is curious. I'm not even sure yeah. if Jay Inslee has, has addressed this or if it's been an issue on, on the other I, side. Of the I haven't seen him address it, but what I will say is that the Canadian side of Peace Arch Park, if, if you and your listeners, I'm sure many of you guys have been down there, it's a, it's a beautiful park, is the, the vast majority is on the Canadian side, right? right? So what's happening now is the very small part that is on the American side is where people are congregating. And, and specifically, you know, like I've said, my concern is on, on the tents. Right, because I think we can all agree that if you're trying to physical distance, A, it's not your top priority if you're in a tent with somebody, nor is it even possible. Yes, absolutely, without going into specifics. <laughs> what, what do you say to people who say this is the only way that they are able to see, uh, whether it's a, a partner, loved one, spouse, who's on the other side of mm-hmm. the border, and this is the only way that they've been able to maintain some kind of relationship and contact throughout this? And I, I have great sympathy for that i really do and i have friends and relatives that that are american and and i think that you know we're all having to it would be the same thing you know i you know i'm talking often with people that aren't able to visit their parents in long-term care homes and you know that aren't able to celebrate a birthday with a loved one and we're all having to make sacrifices and i think we're all starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel there and i think that we need to make sure that we're doing all our part to keep our community as safe as possible and i I don't see how this spark is, is keeping in that standing. Uh, I'm guessing since the letter uh, just went out today, have you had any response? 
I have not had any response from the Premier. Um, I know that this is something that uh, that my colleague uh, Stephanie Cadu from Surrey South has addressed with both Minister Dix and Minister Farnworth, and the reply she got back was, not our problem, not our jurisdiction. So I am hoping that uh, he takes it a little bit more serious than his colleagues do and that we can try and get some directive on this park. Uh, but knowing as well, too, even if he did make that gesture and reached out to the governor and asked for this, the governor could very well turn around and say, it's my jurisdiction, not your problem. Thanks for coming out. We're fine how we are. Yeah, and I, I'd be very disappointed if that was the response. And I think the premier would I would hope the premier would share that disappointment. We've we've always had a great I've lived in this community all my life. And uh, I can tell you that. I've always seen a really good working relationship with Washington State and our support for, you know, for Blaine and White Rock and vice versa. Uh, this is a, an unprecedented time that we're in right now. And I think that we all need to make sure we are doing everything possible to keep ourselves, our families and our neighbours safe. Uh, are there any other steps you or other MLAs are planning uh, as far as addressing this? Well, I want to see what the Premier's response is. And I'm, I'm hoping that the Premier, like I said before at the beginning, is that he's asking us all to do more. And I think by picking up the phone is a signal that he's prepared to do more as well. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people are actually surprised by the amount of um, people they see in this park. And I think this is something that we really need to make sure that we're addressing because uh, I think this is something a lot of people are unaware of. Um, I, I'm hoping the Premier's not unaware of it. I'd be disappointed if he is, but I'm, I'm hoping that he sees how important this is and, uh, and he can take some action. All right. We'll see what the response is to the letter. Trevor Halford, thanks so much for making some time today. Thank you, Joe. Well, as you've likely been hearing in the news, BC's top doctor, that is Dr. Bonnie Henry, seeking an injunction against churches that are violating the public health order that bans in-person services. And Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked about this yesterday. We're very confident um, that uh, all of the actions that Dr. Henry has taken are consistent with the Canadian Charters of Rights and Freedoms. But the matter is before the courts, and uh, and it will be decided there. This will be in the courts on Friday. Dr. Bonnie Henry, along with BC's Attorney General David Eby, seeking an injunction to prevent the three churches, Langley's Riverside Calvary Chapel, Abbotsford's Emmanuel Covenant Reformed Church, and the Free Reformed Church in Chilliwack from holding in-person services. Well, joining me on the line to talk more about this is Marty Moore, staff lawyer at the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. Marty, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts, your reaction to uh, this uh, injunction and the fact that it's going to court? Well, I definitely disagree with the assessment you just played of uh, Minister Dix. Um, the orders that the government has implemented to prohibit entirely religious gatherings uh, do constitute a very serious violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And further, uh, we do not believe that this uh, violation has been justified. Uh, the reality is, and, and Dr. Bonnie Henry herself has stated this, that uh, when uh, COVID safety plans are followed in settings like restaurants, event spaces, churches, temples, hotels, that, quote, we don't see transmission. And this was on her, her statements on October 26th. And that's been borne out by the experience of the Vancouver Archdiocese that had no COVID outbreaks. That's even borne out by our petitioner uh, churches that we're representing. Uh, they have been meeting safely for nine months with no uh, COVID transmission through their services. Um, and, you know, we've evaluated the, the actions of the D.C. government that they're bringing this injunction to close down those three petitioner churches. 
And in their own material, they cite to 180 cases of COVID transmission across the entire province of British Columbia. Um, that may not be a complete segment of their data, but that's what they're citing to. And that's out of 70,000 COVID cases in the province of British Columbia. So the reality is, is that uh, religious gatherings are not a significant source of transmission. And particularly, uh, our clients are meeting safely and their services pose no uh, significant public health threat uh, in our view and also in the view of medical experts that we've retained. Um, and so we believe that this uh, action by the BC government to seek to close down these churches, it's intimidating to our clients who brought forward a very legitimate and important constitutional question for the court to decide. And that is, is the entire prohibition on religious services in the province of BC justified by the evidence that we see? And it sounds like you'll be making that argument or that's the argument that will be put forward. I know we've talked about this in the past and the question often comes up of it being an essential service and whether or not that essential service can be provided without having in-person worship. Yeah, and and essential uh, is a term that's so much in the eye of the beholder. And to consider that uh, a religious service is essential for some, but not essential for others, is really a subjective determination. Some individuals view uh, in-person dining as non-essential. They're fine with takeout. Others even view in-person shopping for groceries as non-essential, and they can do that uh, through the safety and security of their own home via online delivery services. Um, But in regard to religious services, there's there's a fundamental charter right to gather for religious worship, and our clients have sincerely held religious beliefs that require them to gather for religious worship and to celebrate the sacraments of their faith. And and they have attested to this belief and how uh, meeting via Zoom uh, is not sufficient to uh, meet their religious practices. And so, yes, many people have different perspectives on what is and isn't essential. But what we're asking for, in essence, is fairness from the government. And that's not apparent uh, when you can go uh, to a gym, you can go to a restaurant, um, but, but don't dare go to a religious service regardless of the safety protocols in place. And when you talk about the charter rights, and that's what often then brings the argument or the point that charter rights are not absolute, and I'm guessing that's also going to be part of the court hearings. Absolutely. And, and again, the government can act in the interest of preserving people's lives, and, uh, but they have to prove that the actions that they are taking are actually doing that. And again, as we've noted, Uh, the link to 180 case transmissions across the province of BC indicates that uh, religious services are not a significant uh, source of this transmission in BC in light of the 70,000 cases of COVID that that have been transmitted in the province. And so the burden is on the government to justify this complete infringement. And I mean, I'll just point to the other jurisdictions in Canada. Uh, No jurisdiction has treated the faith community as poorly and in my view, as discriminatorily as the province of British Columbia. Didn't we see some, uh, I guess, where they were, some churches that were having, it wasn't in Alberta earlier on in the pandemic, uh, that they were going ahead with having drive-through services, or, or there was some breaking of the rules there as well? Yeah, there, there's been different, uh, you know, circumstances across the country where rules have been, have been broken, and some of that has gone to court. Um, but in the context of British Columbia, where you have, you know, restaurants open, where you have gyms open, and then to prohibit categorically religious services 
That hasn't been done in any jurisdiction that I'm aware of in Canada, uh, maybe even globally. What about the churches in, in this case that have already been issued fines? Is this case about those as well? Or do they pay the fines? Does that, does that admit some level of guilt? What happens there? Yeah, every fine that's been issued uh, to the, the clients that we represent will be challenged in court as well. And uh, I mean, these fines are amounting, uh, amounting to tens of thousands of dollars. And so the province of British Columbia to turn around and now seek an injunction uh, against our clients uh, it essentially places them now in double jeopardy uh, to uh, both under contempt of court and also under the fines that they've received. And again, these are matters that are going before Chief Justice Hinkson uh, this Friday. Um, but it is a significant escalation and, in my view, of course, unwarranted by the government to be pursuing these uh, particular, three particular uh, religious uh, communities that have been meeting and exercising their charter rights very responsibly throughout this time. Again, with no evidence whatsoever of COVID spread through their services. Is part of the, the conversation about this, do you think, and maybe this isn't part of the court case, but is there a concern that in a lot of cases, when we're talking about church gatherings, it does tend to be an older uh, crowd, an older uh, group that will congregate, that will gather in churches. And because of that, we're talking about a part of the population that is more vulnerable and that even if we haven't seen huge spread in the province, there is the potential for huge spread and more dire consequences. Well, I, I don't think that meets up with the reality of the situation that's before the court right now. Uh, in fact, a lot of individuals who recognize their own personal vulnerabilities to a COVID infection have, have self-selected out of attending uh, in-person gatherings, as is, of course, their, their right to do that and, and, and to responsibly exercise their personal choices. And so the clients that, that we're representing, uh, those individuals with, with vulnerabilities, many of them have chosen not to attend in-person services. And so, again, uh, in the particular uh, circumstances, we're talking about uh, faith communities, a lot of them younger, uh, who are meeting um, and doing so safely. Uh, even with you know, guidelines that uh, are in place in a restaurant, which, again, um, when the guidelines are followed, in the words of Dr. Bonnie Henry, we don't see transmission. How do you see things playing out uh, with this going uh, to be before the court on Friday? Uh, will there still be services this coming Sunday? Uh, and do you have any idea when there might be a decision? Yeah, it's probably uh, too early for me to comment on any of that. Of course, this will be in Chief Justice Hinkson's hands on Friday. And uh, when uh, the justice, uh, the Chief Justice issues his decision, I, 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 don't, I don't have a, have a window on that, although it very well could be. Uh, even the day of the hearing on Friday. Because I would imagine in a case like this, and we're talking about something that's time-sensitive, if possible, uh, to expedite it, that would be better for all parties involved. Absolutely. And, and the court has, has taken uh, great steps to expedite this matter. Uh, the full hearing on the merits is actually going forward on March 1st to 3rd. And so the court has made uh, good efforts to make available a significant amount of court time uh, to address this very important matter. Um, so again, this, this, this injunction application against these three churches, which have been meeting you know, safely since the, the gathering restrictions were actually imposed in November uh, and, and prior to that as well, uh, this injunction application within a few weeks of the, the actual final hearing on the merits, is, uh, it, is, it is intimidating. And the churches that we represent, these petitioners, feel targeted. Uh, what message does that send to churches uh, who would 
believe that they should take their matters to court if, if the government's going to turn around and target them, uh, regardless of whether they themselves pose a risk uh, to, of transmission. All right. We'll be watching to see what happens uh, on Friday. Marty, thanks so much for joining us for your time today. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, a prominent women's rights advocate and a graduate of UBC has been released from a Saudi jail. This, according to some of her family members, the sister of Lujan Al-Halflul tweeted earlier, shared on social media, uh, that uh, Lujan had been released from prison. A little bit of background. This is a news report from uh, a couple of years ago when the arrest, uh, when the sentence was handed down. Jane Alathlul has paid for her activism with years of her life. She believed it was her right to drive, no matter what Saudi law said. Men who want to stop us from driving are doing us an injustice. They are oppressing us. Alathlul has been arrested more than once for her women's rights activism. She has been kept behind bars since 2018. Her family has alleged she's been tortured in jail. Now she's been sentenced by an anti-terror court. And again, news today that Lujan Al-Hathlul has been released. Joining me now to talk more about this is Atiyah Jaffer, a friend of Lujan's, also a member of the group Friends of Lujan. That is a group that acts in solidarity with the global movement to free, to get to her freed. Let's bring Atiyah on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi there. Thank you. Very uh, honored to be here. Well, I'm so glad you were able and you had some time for us. I wanted to get your reaction. You must be very pleased with this news. Yes. Yeah, it was such a huge relief. Um, We are all so happy. We have our little friends of Blue Jane group chat and it was just exploding with messages this morning. Everyone's just so, so happy and so relieved. Uh, Do we know what it was that led to her release? Well, um, so she was sentenced to six years in prison in December, but um, in in, uh, sentencing her, the judge actually backdated part of her sentence to start when she was first imprisoned in 2018. And they also um, waived part of her sentence, um, saying that she didn't need to serve it immediately. Um, So that that meant in December um, that she would be released in early 2021. So we were expecting her to be released this month or next month. Um, and it seems like uh, it seems like they were very quick <laughs> to to act on that, um, especially with the new administration in the U.S. Uh, do you know where she is now? Yeah, so she's at home uh, in Saudi Arabia with her parents now. Uh, I believe she's in her family home. Um, and uh, earlier today, she was video conferencing with her sister, uh, who her sister is in Europe. Um, And so uh, her sister had tweeted uh, a screenshot of the video chat, and it was just so beautiful to see that, to see both of them finally connecting after all these years, after a thousand and one days uh, behind bars for Lujain. Do we know much, uh, that report alluded to it a bit, do we know much about what her life was like for those thousand and one days? Oh, really, really terrible. Um, You know, she was treated really, really badly. um, And the details are just horrific. Um, While she was in prison, Lou Jane was tortured. She was sexually assaulted. She was held in solitary confinement, which is a gross human rights violation. Um, So it's just, uh, yeah, it was just, it was abysmal treatment. And it's just such a relief to know that she's on the other side of that.
And again, the report talked a bit about it. And for people that have been following along, she was very vocal in women's rights, in various rights that women didn't have and in many cases still don't have in Saudi Arabia. Was there one particular fight? Was it fighting for women's rights to drive? Was it because she was so outspoken about that? Was there one particular thing that you think or that that it's believed was what got her into trouble or was the final straw that, that set this off and got her that sentence? Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's very confusing um, because uh, the things that she was tried for, the things that she's convicted for are, are just ridiculous. Um, so when she was convicted of terrorism, um, some of the um, the things that she did um, that were named were, um, you know, that she had applied to a U.N. job, um, that she had um, like communicated with international organizations such as Amnesty International. And these were the charges against her to qualify her for this kind of terrorist conviction, which is absolutely ridiculous because these things are not terrorist activities. Um, she was simply peacefully advocating for women's rights. Um, so uh, her, her specific uh, kind of activism wasn't named, but things that Lu Jane was involved with at the time of her arrest, um, include fighting against the male guardianship laws in Saudi Arabia. Um, For many years, she had challenged the driving ban against women. She had actively, uh, you know, resisted and um, participated in in mass kind of driving civil civil disobedience actions. Um, And she had been arrested for, you know, driving and and for advocating for women to drive in the past. Uh, But what's very interesting is that... um, at the time that she was arrested in 2018, Saudi Arabia had already committed to ending the driving ban against women. Mm. And soon after she was arrested, they actually did end the driving ban. Right. Um, so it's very interesting because they essentially, you know, as a result of her activism, they were forced to end the driving ban. But um, they proceeded to take credit for their actions as, as opposed to crediting the activists who fought for it, including Lu Jane. Uh, Lujane, from what I understand, she still has a, a five-year travel ban. She's on probation. You mentioned that this this also see, it did happen under uh, President Joe Biden. Do you think this will lead, or that she will be happy that this could lead to uh, more pressure on Saudi Arabia when it comes to human rights? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the Biden administration has been very vocal about the fact that they want to change the kind of relationship that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia, and it sounds like they will be taking a, a more firm stance um, on things like women's rights, human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, Yemen. Um, so I think it is encouraging to see that kind of a commitment from the Biden administration. And I think it does make the Saudi kingdom very nervous. And I think this kind of action from um, the Biden administration comes after so much pressure from people around the world um, for the United States for the United States and world leaders everywhere to take a stronger position on Saudi Arabia. And I think Justin Trudeau can can learn a lot um, from this kind of position as well. Uh, certainly. Uh, have you heard, I know uh, she's been speaking with family, as you said, there was the, the screenshot of, of the conference. Do you know, uh, even with these conditions that she's still under, what she plans to do next? I can't imagine she's going to go quiet. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, she is extremely committed to women's rights, to human rights, um, to just progress in Saudi Arabia. And I can imagine that we can expect great things from her. We can continue to expect greatness from her. But I also think it's very important for her to reconnect and rest and care for herself and connect with her family members. So my my hope for her is that she gets a chance to do that as well, uh, because I think this is such a a long-awaited 
moment, not just for her, but for her family and her community as well. Everybody I know that's been uh, rooting for her to to get to, to stay strong and to wait, waiting for this day, uh, seeing her release for sure. Uh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Atia, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this and uh, and good work in in staying with this group and keeping the pressure on and 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 the public informed of what's going on with this. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting and spotlighting the story. And thank you to everyone who participated in this movement to call for Lou Jane's freedom.